Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. My guest today is Dr. Anthony Fauci. As the COVID-19 pandemic has descended upon the United States over the past three months, Dr. Fauci has become a household name thanks to his expertise and his clear and calm communication style. Though many of us have just learned about his work recently, Dr. Fauci has been in public service for decades, directing the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases since 1984. If there's been a widespread infectious disease you've heard about, Dr. Fauci worked on it, from HIV to Ebola to Zika. His impact on public health, both here and around the world, is incalculable. Dr. Fauci is also a product of Jesuit education, and he credits his years at Regis High School in New York and the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, as helping to lay the groundwork for his career. I asked him what he found distinctive about his Jesuit education. We also talked about what his typical day looks like mid-pandemic and where we stand right now in our fight against this dreadful disease. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Dr. Anthony Fauci, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking some time out of your very busy schedule uh, to chat with me today. Uh, first of all, how are you holding up these days? Uh, I'm holding up. Um, you know, this is um, an unprecedented situation that has to be met by an unprecedented effort. So, you know, I'm working about 18 hours a day. <laughs> I don't sleep much. But other than that, I'm really actually doing very well. Thanks. Well, that's good. So what does your typical day look like? What What are those 18 hours made up of? Oh, well, you know, it's a combination of so many things. I, I you know, I am the director <clears throat> of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases which is a large $6 billion largest infectious disease research organization in the world. So that's a big job. I do it half of the day. And then the other half of the day, I'm down at the White House with the White House Coronavirus Task Force. So, I mean, right now, one of the major um, uh, levels of activity and, and, and things that we're doing is to develop vaccines and drugs for treatment of COVID. So I'm very much responsible for providing leadership in that direction with a, my staff, which is a very qualified staff of scientists and administrators. So we do that usually from around seven o'clock in the morning until around midday. Uh, you know, I have a laboratory that I run. I'm also a scientist, so I meet with my own lab people during that time. And then virtually every day, for one reason or other, we go down to the White House uh, interact with the White House Coronavirus Task Force, meet with the vice president, occasionally meet with the president, and try and set some of the guidelines for reopening the guidelines for addressing the bursts of infection that we're now seeing. Uh, then when I get home in the evening, uh, this is the one that really is the clincher, is you usually have about a thousand emails you gotta look at. <laughs> so you do that until the wee hours of the morning, go to bed, get up, five o'clock, 5.30 and start all over again. And it's seven days a week. It isn't, it isn't, uh, there's no, as I joke around, it's, it, there's never middle of time, you know, and they say. <laughs> I was gonna ask how you keep your spirit grounded. Are you able to, I, I would say read, but there sounds like no time for pleasure reading or exercise or anything. The one, the one thing I do do, and I do it consistently, is that when I go, I used to during normal times, uh, when we had a full day here at NIH, 
I would run about three, three and a half miles or power walk, depending on how I felt, but certainly a, a good three to three and a half miles of activity. I would do it midday rather than have lunch. So now, since my day is completely packed, what I do it is in the evening when I go home at night before I eat and wind up uh, spending hours after I eat, I just go out for, a, for a, a really good run or a walk every day. So I exercise is the only non-work thing that I do. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, so when you're in the course of those days, you talked about um, doing some research and working toward vaccine and treatments. Could you give an update on where we stand there? I know we hear all kinds of different things about timelines and yeah, what's what's the state of that research right now? Okay, so let's take vaccines to begin with. So vaccines right now are on a very good accelerated timeline. There are a number of candidates, you know, one of which was developed here by my group at, uh, at NIH, NIAID, and several others that the NIH is partnering and collaborating with companies in which it's a vaccine that's developed by and owned by a company, but we help them in the clinical trial process. So several of these have already gone into early phase one studies. They've shown to induce the kind of response that would make you cautiously optimistic that in fact it might work. In the first couple of weeks in July, the first candidate will go into a phase three trial to determine if it's effective. Then in August, another candidate, then in September, another candidate. If you look at the timetable of the first candidate, it takes several months of vaccine work in a clinical trial to determine if something works. Namely, is it safe and does it induce the kind of response that's protective and does in fact protect people. So if we started off in July, by the time you get the second boost, it's August. By the time you get most people accrued, it's September and October. By the time you get an answer, it's November, December. So we should know at least whether a vaccine works by the end of the year, by the beginning of 2021, if we are fortunate that it does work. And I hope that we'll have one, more than one candidate that's actually successful. So it isn't like a race among several candidates to see which one wins the race. It's to get as many successful vaccines as you possibly can, and then to make enough doses to be able to distribute it. Bottom line is by the beginning of 2021, we should have a good idea about whether we have a vaccine or not. With regard to therapy, that's a little quicker. We've already shown that one therapy that we've tested in a randomized placebo-controlled trial actually works. It works in that it's significant uh, in its effect, but it's modest. It diminishes by about 30% the likelihood that you're gonna get uh, uh, discharged. So, it, excuse me, I'll say it more correctly. It hastens by 32% the time that it takes to get out of the hospital if you're hospitalized with pulmonary involvement and you are having lung disease. We now have a number of other trials. In fact, just today, as we speak, literally an, an hour and a half ago, it was announced from the UK that another form of treatment, particularly in people who are on ventilators or who have serious advanced disease, a drug called dexamethasone, which is a glucocorticoid or a steroid, 
that diminishes inflammation was shown to be successful in individuals who are in fact advanced disease on a ventilator. It's, it's helpful in their survival. Right. So that that's good news and that research again, so uh, urgent and, and will continue. At the same time, as you said, you're kind of looking out at what's going on around the country, offering some thoughts on reopening and what we're seeing. When you look at the data from around the country, what stands out to you right now? What are you noticing? Well, again, an interesting thing that people need to appreciate is that we live in a very large country that is not a homogeneous unidimensional country. So what goes on in the metropolitan area of New York or in downtown DC is very different than what goes on in Casper, Wyoming or in Des Moines, Iowa. So you have situations that have been hit very hard, such as New York City, Washington, Detroit, New Orleans, Chicago. In most of those places, particularly New York, there's a very steep decline in the number of deaths and cases. So New York has gotten hit the worst, but they're getting better very quickly. Washington DC got hit moderately badly, but they're coming back now. The number of, of, of hospitalizations are going down. We're looking at the first stages of reopening. At the same time, there are some states, unfortunately, that are wanting to open quickly who didn't have very many cases two, three months ago, which are now starting to see a considerable number of cases. California, Arizona, North Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee, Texas, places like that. So again, it's not one size fits all. Some components of the country, some regions, some states, some cities are doing quite well and others are getting into a little bit of trouble. And therefore they've gotta be much more careful in how they reopen or try to get the economy back. For the past few weeks, we've seen so many uh, protests around the country uh, in response to police violence and racial injustice. When you see big gatherings like that, like what goes through your mind? Obviously, the, the cause is important, but just what is your reaction when you, when you see things like that? Well, I get concerned because obviously we have been very consistent in our message that you should avoid congregation in crowds. You should wear a mask at all times when you're outside. So when you see crowds, such as demonstrations or large meetings in which people are congregated together, even people who don't have masks or people who do have masks, and when they start chanting and shouting and demonstrating, they pull the mask off. That's a double risk. I know that there's compelling reasons for people to demonstrate for social justice. Preferably, you shouldn't do that for safety. But since the reason for doing it is so compelling, if you are gonna do it, please wear a mask and keep the mask on at all times. When it comes to reopening for Jesuit institutions, some big pressing questions would be about worship, a public gathering for, for mass, and also schools, obviously, colleges and, and high schools. What are some of uh, the feedback you're giving to, to places in, in regards to public worship and, and schooling in the fall? You know, it, it, it somewhat uh, abuts on the answer that I gave you to a previous question, is it depends on where you are. You've got to look at the dynamics of the outbreak in the particular area where the school is. Um, also, you've got to know that kids will come in from all parts of the country to some places, like here in Washington, D.C., you have Georgetown, you have AU, you have GW, you have a number of other of other uh, colleges and universities. 
some of the universities are adapting a policy of essentially screening and testing everybody once when they come in and then following it up with surveillance. So if you're gonna open, you're gonna open first of all to make sure it's in accordance with the dynamics of the outbreak where you are, but you've also gotta be creative. And a lot of these presidents of universities are really being very creative about how they're arranging classes, making sure when kids board, there's one per room, having a safe place to put someone who's either infected or needs to be taken care of, like a dorm that's only involved for those people where you wanna sequester them for the number of days or weeks until they return. There's a lot of ways to do that. Hi there, we'll get back to my conversation with Dr. Fauci in just a minute, but first I want to invite you to join me in the Jesuit Book Club. The club is an online community of Jesuits and friends who read books that wrestle with life's biggest questions. Our summer reading selection is the novel The Ninth Hour by National Book Award-winning author Alice McDermott. The Associated Press called the book a haunting and vivid portrait of an Irish Catholic clan in early 20th century America. The most exciting part is that Alice McDermott herself will be joining us for a live conversation about the book on Monday, July 27th. Sign up to attend that gathering and get information about our Facebook group for ongoing discussion at jesuits.org slash book club. Okay, back to the show. So we've seen right now, again, the role that a lot of different religious organizations have played in responding, even when not being able to gather their people. They're providing meals for families that have been hit hard by the economic setback, providing you know presence in hospitals to, to patients, providing last rites, maybe in a, in a Catholic setting. What are some of the roles you think religious organizations specifically might play or continue to play uh, in response to the pandemic? You know, I, I think that um, what you've said needs to be underscored is that uh, faith-based organizations, particularly Catholic, but not just Catholic, faith-based organizations have played historically major roles when there have been stresses on society, disasters, outbreaks, you know, be it influenza, be it Ebola in Africa, you know, Zika in South America, and right now COVID-19 here, that religious organizations play a role in outreach to the community and helping the community. So we're talking today on the feast of St. John Regis, who is a Jesuit saint and the namesake of your high school, Regis High School in New York City. That's why I invited you on to the show uh, specifically to talk a little bit about your Jesuit education. And from there, you went to the College of the Holy Cross. So looking back at those two experiences, what is distinctive to you about your Jesuit education? Well, I think it's, for me, it was um, a solidification and an amplification of some of the principles I learned from my parents who were very much uh, attuned to responsibility to society and service to others. So the idea about service was something that was ingrained with me. When I went to Regis High School, which was a spectacular experience for me, not only was it to uh, cultivate that fundamental spirit of service for others, but it provided for me something that has been a major I think a strength uh, uh, that I've relied on in everything I've done, and that is the intellectual rigor, honesty, the be able, and I use, I use this often when I talk to students, that I learned what I call precision of thought 
an economy of expression. In other words, know exactly what you're talking about. Know what the question is when someone asks you. Know your audience and give whatever it is you're going to talk about in a way that's very economical in words. It's often said that the longer you take to explain something, the less you understand it. So, and you're doing a lot of explaining these days, so having to draw on that most certainly. Were there any any mentors at Regis, people who may have communicated that message to you who you remember fondly, whether Jesuit or, or not? No, actually, when I went to Regis High School, it was like 85% or more, maybe close to 90% of the teachers were either Jesuit scholastics who were Jesuits in training or Jesuit priests. So I remember certainly several of them who had an important impact on me. I think the ones that we dealt with most closely were the scholastics because they were not that far away in age from us. I mean, we were young teenagers. They were in their 20s. Uh, so it was a, it was easy to develop relationship. I can remember, uh, you know, far, uh, and Mr. And we, they weren't priests. We didn't call them father. It was Mr. McMahon and Mr. Connolly and Mr. Uh, Murray were people who got me interested in science. The other thing I liked about the Jesuit education is that as rigorous as they are intellectually, they're very steeped in the classics. So I learned the the the, the fundamentals of classics with Greek and Latin, a Romance language in high school. And then when I went to Holy Cross, the same principle of service to others, the same issue of precision of thought and economy of expression, intellectual rigor, honesty, transparency. That were the things that were the, the hallmarks of how we interacted. I took a very unusual course at Holy Cross, which was promoted by the faculty for people who wanted to be pre-med. It still has a very, very good pre-med, but back then it was the premier pre-med and probably still is course of Catholic colleges. But it wasn't all science. I, I took more credits of philosophy and I took Greek, Latin, French. And I, I, I mean, I went back and looked at some of my old report cards as it were. And, and the number of, of, of courses I took in philosophy was like stunning. I mean, metaphysics, philosophical psychology, epistemology, logics, ethics, and on and on and on. But that was really good because that mixed with enough science to get me into medical school. When I went into medical school, I was as much a humanitarian as I was a scientist. And that, I think, has had a major impact on the direction of my career in medicine, science, and public health. So, I mean, I kind of thank and I'm grateful to that environment that I was put in, in my training, because I carried it with me up to this day in whatever I do. Yeah, it's interesting because with the grounding in the liberal arts, we see now in a lot of higher ed places that, that move to STEM education, which obviously is so important, but it sounds like your your liberal arts grounding kind of prepared you for your career, even if it wasn't specifically related to what you're doing every day. Right. That's true. I mean, the liberal arts and the humanities develop you as a person. Uh, I think that the science, I don't want to, I mean, I am a scientist, so I don't want the scientists of the world to think I'm bad-mouthing them. But if you just strictly do science, you know, it, it develops your intellect, you know, and, and, and your ability to analyze. 
it doesn't necessarily make you much better as a person. Whereas if you do liberal arts and humanities, you can do that at the same time as you're learning science. I'm sure in your career since then, you've had chances to do all, all sorts of things, but have kind of stayed in this public service realm. What, what keeps you kind of in, in this line of work uh, doing these things? Why do you think that has been important to you and kind of the way that your journey has led you? Well, you know, I'm, I'm an infectious diseases physician and scientist and a public health person. And infectious diseases is just one of the most exciting dynamic fields because we involve with emerging and re-emerging infections. So my job, you know, I've been director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases for 36 years. Um, and people say, but don't you kind of get bored with being in the same job for so long? Well, that is the farthest from the truth. Because if you look at the history, I came into the job in the very early years of the HIV AIDS pandemic, which is still a major challenge, you know, almost 40 years later, 39 years later. But look at the challenges that I've had over the years, besides the absolutely uh, uh, overwhelming burden of disease with malaria and tuberculosis globally. I've dealt with from HIV AIDS, pandemic influenza, bird flu, swine flu, chikungunya, Ebola, Zika, and now COVID-19. That's about the least boring job in the world to deal with those challenges. So what's kept me going is the challenge uh, of, of trying to safeguard the health and the welfare, not only of the country, but of the world from an affront of organisms that threaten us. I mean, look at what we're going through right now with COVID-19. It's essentially transformed the entire planet. I mean, nowhere ever in history has a disease shut down and locked down the entire globe. So, I mean, to be in the middle of that is is uh, very challenging, but also very invigorating. Do you have you heard from young people who are have been interested in, in medicine who maybe now because of COVID are thinking about uh, infectious disease or public health or moving in that direction? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, uh, the fact that you cannot you cannot hide from what what we're what we're living through. It's on everybody's mind. I don't think a day goes by in anybody's life where they don't talk about this. Uh, and I say anybody, I mean anybody in the world. <laughs> we very rarely have a situation like that. So yes, there's a lot of interest that's being engendered in younger people about wanting to get involved and being part of the solution. It's so hard, obviously, to predict the future as we come up on the summer. Any just kind of final thoughts about where we're headed, what we need to be doing as a national community? Just any final thoughts for us? Yeah, I mean, what we need to do is to realize that we are all in this together uh, and we've got to be realistic. We have a challenge. Uh, we've, we've got to understand the sacrifices that are made. And they are. I mean, the, the very, very mechanism that we're employing to slow down and stop the outbreak is the thing that's essentially causing unemployment, is doing a wrecking job on the economy, is not allowing people to have access to things that they normally would have a need. So it is not an easy situation, but we need to hang in there. This is going to end. It will end. It will end both from a public health standpoint and science will come in with, with diagnostics, 
with therapeutics and with vaccines. So the combination of public health together with scientific discoveries will get us out of that. We can't get discouraged as difficult as it seems. We just need to be in there together and push together to end it. Well, Dr. Fauci, thanks again so much for taking some time and uh, best wishes to you as uh, you continue this uh, this run of 18 hour days. So <laughs> good. Good to see. You. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. OK, bye bye. Bye bye. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Doris Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. 